Welcome back to Tea with G. Thank you very much for joining me for another episode. Um, today we are talking about zombies, as you probably gathered from the title, actually. I've been recently watching a most wonderful Korean drama. It's called Happiness. Uh, it's not very happy, so it's a bit ironic. It's actually a zombie thriller action drama. And it is incredibly good. So I do recommend it if you have um, Vicky, Rakuten Vicky, that's what I watch it on. I would definitely suggest that you take the time. But basically, until I started watching Happiness, I was never really that interested in zombies. I've never really spent much time thinking about them, learning about them. Um, And honestly, like... The most exposure I've really had to zombies is in anime. Um, I watched High School of the Dead. I guess I've I've seen I Am Legend, but I feel like they're not zombies. They're supposed to be like some vampire variant, right? And maybe a little bit from The Last of Us. I have played some of The Last of Us as well. Other than that, though, I have super limited experience with um, zombies. So given that... I thought it would be interesting to look at the more realistic ways in which a zombie apocalypse could actually happen. And that's how I came to this idea for this episode. Anyway, it's still definitely a little bit fictitious to think about, I think, but I was definitely surprised. Uh, Some of the, the things I learned while researching kind of did make me feel like it's actually quite reasonable to think that some sort of zombie apocalypse might actually happen, uh, you know, at some point. And I do want to point out, though, (laughs) um, I am using zombie and apocalypse in a very loose sense of the term. Um, I'm just trying to talk about what is a realistic zombie apocalypse. And so when I say zombie and when I say apocalypse and when I say zombie apocalypse, I don't necessarily mean in in that fantastical element okay we're taking a step back and we're looking at it in sort of how you could best describe a realistic situation so I think it's only appropriate to start at the beginning with kind of like a brief history lesson um, with the you know the concept of zombie which actually goes back way earlier than I was expecting so all the way back to the early 18th century like 1809 or 1819 or something and basically back then it was associated mostly with voodoo magic and Haitian people for those of you unfamiliar as I was Haiti is a Caribbean island off the east coast of Mexico above Venezuela And zombies started as part of Haitian folklore. So it was said that the dead could become puppets and they were reanimated by a sorcerer or a witch. Um, They they call it a boca, if I remember correctly. And basically that boca will then be able to control them and enslave them for eternity or until their soul is released. And many of the rural folks laws were based around the African slaves of the time who believed that committing suicide would lend them a one-way ticket to enslavement, basically, after death, as sort of like a punishment for the sin of killing oneself. The basic principle of zombie at 
that time in history was usually to do with necromancy. So it involved the dead and it involved enslaving the will of the, the dead's body to do basically the bidding of the bocker. So there was not really... Um, there was obviously like way more information. That's the synopsis or my version of it. I'm sure I have remembered something inaccurately or interpreted something um, possibly not in its entire truth. But hopefully that makes sense to you. There were also some other instances where a zombie was to do with the soul being trapped. So not necessarily the body. But there wasn't so much information about it, to be honest. And it sort of didn't really feel very zombie-esque, you know? Like, there was no reanimating corpses. So I didn't bother to look into it anymore. And, like, after doing all of that research, right, I honestly... And I don't think I'm the only one. I literally just forgot that zombies and their... In their originality is based around the dead coming back to life. Because if you look at like a modern day zombie, they're not very original. They're usually based around viruses or pandemics. Uh, People turn into zombies while they're alive. There's not usually anything to do with the dead. And there's usually no reanimation involved, no voodoo involved, no magic or Frankenstein-y crap. It's literally just always pandemic or virus related now. There are some exceptions, of course. I'm pretty sure the Walking Dead, um, I think the virus in that is based around being uh, like asymptomatic until you die and then you're like reanimated in a sense after you your demise. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I feel like nowadays it's all based around some sort of virus that we've contracted and we're spreading it by biting people and scratching people. And there always seems to be um, you know, like this thirst for blood involved, which I find ironic because that's really more vampiric than zombie, isn't it? And yet we somehow have managed to turn the concept of zombie into like a mix between a vampire and a ghoul. And there's usually not much zombie involved. They just walk around like a zombie or look a little bit like a zombie. Um, but anyway, I did a bunch of research and from that, I basically came to the conclusion that there's probably three ways you could sell a movie, uh, a zombie apocalypse to me in, in like a realistic sense. And some of these options are more realistic than others, of course. So there's the virus pandemic related outbreak take, which is very popular and understandably so. It's probably the most scientifically grounded then you have number two which is something to do with like nuclear radiation and my third one was something to do with flora or fauna Um, some of these could also work together to create sort of like the optimal opportunity for what we might call a zombie apocalypse if we look at the zombies from happiness as an example They are brought about by a drug which was created to combat none other than COVID-19 symptoms. Um, Basically, the drug is a bust and was removed from the market, but it still finds itself widespread um, because of, I guess, people taking the drug for its concentration benefits. And it was sort of sold as like an underground booster drug sold by dealers as a, I guess, a, a supplement. 
And once the, thim- the symptoms start to kick in, the person becomes incoherent at times and suffers from an incredible thirst, one that can only be satiated by human blood. So the, the characters dance back and forth between their like normal selves and the zombified version um, where their eyes become frosted and their veins become more pronounced. After some time, they can no longer control themselves and stay within like the symptom period for longer and longer until they basically just lose control of who, you know, like their original self. And once this happens, the virus slowly kills them and they expire, I guess, as like a normal human body would. Um, The virus, like most, is transmitted by body fluids, so scratching and biting mainly. I particularly like the concept behind the zombies and happiness because there really isn't a lot of science-based plot holes, or at least not to my limited science-based knowledge, that is. Um, So as long as you come in and out of the zombie state and happiness, you can still eat and drink to maintain your body's health, which is integral to the longevity of the zombie. So I find that to be quite realistic. Uh... The only thing that kind of can't be explained so far or what hasn't been explained in the, I guess, lore of the drama is why they feel this incredible thirst and and why it's for human blood. And I boiled it down, and this is my, I guess, my take on it, is something like a a severe lack of iron or a vitamin um, that the virus needs in some way. And this makes the thirst some it's sort of something like an exaggerated craving so in happiness there are some zombies who have got self-control or a greater level of it and they can sort of fight their urges which again i think like a strong-willed person it kind of uh gives that more realistic feeling um the veins i kind of can describe as being more pronounced with blood you know rushing through the body due to all the adrenaline The only thing is the whitening of the eyes. Like, I really can't explain that. I think that's really unlikely to happen in a realistic scenario. I think that's just, we'll leave that for the cinematic value. But everything else so far, I think can kind of be added up. And I will explain why shortly. (laughs) Um, So basically in happiness, the virus penetrates the brain where it brings... Uh, brings about the symptoms and the changes in the person thereafter and it's hard for the scientists and the medical professionals in the drama to get past the brain's outer protections um, in order to kill off the virus which is why it turns into like a, a pandemic and basically they're unable to create the uh an antibody that can bypass the brain's defense layers so They know that they can kill the virus, but they can't get past the brain's defenses. So it's a very interesting take. And, you know, I'm I'm not really sure how that adds up in terms of like anatomy, um, how realistic that is. It sounds sciencey. I'll believe it. (laughs) I'm sure to a certain degree, it's probably accurate. Um... And interestingly as well is that these zombies are sort of uh, like sentient while they're in that bloodthirsty, crazy zombie mode. So the characters can recall fragments of what's going on, but they just can't seem to control themselves. And 
So the, the urge or the desire for blood kind of takes over, even though their conscience is still relatively present. So keeping all of that in mind now, if you look at things from like a real life perspective, when I say rabies, you say zombies. It's most often associated with zombie-like behaviours, isn't it? So rabies is a virus that attacks the central nervous system and it spreads to the brain, after which the virus multiplies at a rapid rate. And basically you get inflammation of the brain and areas around the, the top of the spinal cord. And the person usually deteriorates and dies quickly, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, interestingly, in an, in an infected person... They can experience any or all of these symptoms. So states of anxiety and confusion, partial paralysis, agitation, hallucination, and in the final stages, hydrophobia, which is a fear of water. It is possible to survive rabies, um, in, you know, usually in thanks to quick intervention and um, the possible success of the rabies vaccination. Um, but most people unfortunately perish. So I think around 60, le less than 60,000 people a year die from rabies. Um, but yeah, there's currently no 100% effective treatment. So the virus can spread at different rates as well. So it makes it kind of hard if, um, if you've got someone who doesn't know that they're infected, they can go on average, uh, you know, incubate the virus for up to 30 to 50 days, sometimes even a year, which from a zombie pandemic point of view could be problematic. <laughs> um, though, the, the, so the closer to the brain, the infected area, so like if you're bitten by a dog that carries rabies or something, um, the closer to the brain that area is, the quicker you're going to experience symptoms, So, which makes sense. But I want you to look into the symptoms with me, particularly anxiousness, confusion, agitation, and then pair that with hallucination. You can certainly see, right, how an infected person could present zombie-like. So to look at things with a more open and, and fantasy-like mind as well, the hydrophobia could even cause the person to suffer from extreme thirst, could it not? Are you are you seeing what I'm putting down here? <laughs> um, furthermore, just this year, scientists discovered a new virus um, that they're calling the giant virus. It is over like something like 30,000 years old and they dug it up out of the Siberian permafrost, which honestly I wish that they wouldn't dig around in, but they've done it. It's too late now. And basically, this giant virus is a DNA-affecting virus, which, rather dramatically in my opinion, can hold up to 500-odd genes, which is just insane. So to put that into perspective, HIV, it's a wicked virus, we all know about it, and that kills around 1 million people a year. And that's not even considering the actual amount of people that are infected with HIV, so we have no current effective or permanent cure for HIV. It has bested us so far. And HIV only has 12 genes. 12! The giant virus has 500. That's a friggin' lot. <laughs> so this new old virus, luckily, 
the one that they've discovered in the permafrost doesn't seem to interact with human or animal cells. But my point is, imagine if they uncovered some sort of 500 gene ancient rabies-like virus and it becomes active again. It's entirely possible. It's possible that the giant virus could even become active again and, and who's to say that it wouldn't mutate? As COVID has shown us in recent years, you know, we all know how quickly strains of new strains of viruses can come about. So, you know, just thinking about this information was honestly enough to make me buy a bunch of extra stuff in my shopping. So, um, okay, so anyway, I, I finished for the moment preaching about viruses. I just really needed to get it out of my system because I've been sitting on this revelation for like a week now and honestly finding that stuff out about the giant virus just made me feel super uncomfortable. Um, I'm not usually someone who clings on to this kind of like conspiracy stuff but just stacking all of that evidence up I was like oh my god (laughs) I think this podcast is not good for me. Okay Moving on from the viruses and pandemics, I wanted to talk about nuclear radiation. It's arguably less exciting than the other options, um, at least in my opinion anyway. But to give you a brief introduction to nuclear radiation, it affects living cells, okay? So it damages the genetic makeup of those cells and it can also like cause... Uh, radiation burns to the skin so if you're close enough to a a blast of nuclear radiation or exposed to it for long enough you can um, sort of get like burns your skin will burn Um, it can also have other lasting impacts on um, health so like increased risk of cancer increased risk of cardiovascular diseases Uh, but you know nuclear radiation and its effects is that's kind of it in a nutshell Anyway, there was an, there's an old movie and it's called Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. And when I was doing all of my researching for this episode, um, I came across it. So the plot is a hot friggin' mess, but the concept basically goes like this. Corpses get reanimated by ultrasonic radiation. So this is obviously different to nuclear radiation, but I still thought the idea could be sort of applied. So the corpse is subject to radiation, which brings them back to life somehow. There's plot holes rife through this whole movie. Um, It's very far-fetched, to be honest, and I don't think it's plausible in real life, like at all, but the it was the concept that got me thinking on how nuclear radiation might have a role to play. So just hear me, hear me out, okay, hear me out. We go to war, which many people already consider to be imminent. It's a nuclear war because, honestly, that seems to be the flavour of the century with our current mighty leaders. Uh, the bombs are dropped, people everywhere are getting baked by nuclear rays and inundated by damaged cells and you know, bringing about, amongst other other things, changes to their appearances. So the burns and the, you know, whatever else is caused by damaging cells. Then, as if this wasn't catastrophic enough, the nuclear radiation damages and changes the genes within 
something like the giant virus. And then widespread mayhem ensues. The world is taken over by radiated infected humans. This is giving me very fallout vibes, like fallout ghoul vibes. Um, everything we know and love comes to a blazing end and basically the sixth mass extinction begins. In all seriousness, um, I'm very theatrical right now about this concept. I think it is still a bit far-fetched, but I think it's not that far-fetched, right? You know, I, I think that it's plausible enough to be mentioned. Uh, I do just want to remind you, this is not a conspiracy podcast. This isn't a conspiracy theory channel. Um, and honestly, I don't really have much more to say on nuclear radiation. I just think given the difficulty of coming into contact with large amounts of radiation, it's pretty unlikely without something as big and catastrophic and life-changing as like a nuclear war. Uh, especially when you compare something like viruses, um, a zombie apocalypse I think is just far more likely to come from something like a virus or a pandemic than it is to come from uh, radiation in some way. And I think as well, radiation really needs that secondary help. So yes, you can have a nuclear war and yes, you can make people look a bit like zombies or ghouls from Fallout 4, but you don't necessarily get those zombie tendencies of like in the infected, basically. So yeah, as I said, that's really all that I've got to talk about in terms of nuclear radiation. It really needs to have some sort of yeah, backup as well. But I just think given the way the world is going, it's not really that unlikely or, you know, it's not that unplausible. Is unplausible a word? I don't think it is. I think it's still plausible enough, okay, but not likely. <laughs> so this last one is definitely my favourite. I'm a bit of a nature nerd, so learning about it was just a little bit extra fun. Um, I've known about the cordyceps fungus for ages, so I watched it in a documentary years and years ago. And I remember when I first came across it, I was enthralled by it. So just the concept of a fungi being able to take over a host, control it, kill it and then spawn from it is just a little bit too interesting you know it's like it's gnarly it's innovative it's original um <laughs> but before I get too carried away I wanted to just explain where I got the concept from so I obviously knowing about the fungi it was something that came to my mind anyway but then when I did a little bit more research I realized that The Last of Us, the video game, is basically the perfect example of what I would expect to happen if the cordyceps fungus did start to affect humans. So in the game, zombies are affected by a strain of the cordyceps fungus. So the way this fungus works on the video game humans is basically the same as it does in, uh, like on insects in real life. There's really only one difference and that's in the video game you can also be infected by uh, scratching or biting of an infected individual. I, I don't really know 
if that works in real life or not. I couldn't see anything about it when I was researching it. I don't think an infected ant can bite a non-infected ant. Um, I you know, and I've seen in the documentaries, infected individuals get removed from the colony and that doesn't seem to have an impact on the ants that move them. So I think in, in terms of uh, like realisticness, that's the only thing that differs. And I can see how they incorporated that into The Last of Us. It seems like that's kind of a very typical way of infecting others. So how the fungus works is it once it like a spawn gets into the system of an insect, it basically begins to grow within that host. And the fungi can somehow control the mind or the will of that insect. So it makes the insect or the host find a good vantage point for the fungi to spawn. And once it's gotten into a good position, it kills the host and completes its growth using the host as nutrients. And then basically finishes uh, growing and sprouts through the exoskeleton. So this then allows it to release its spawns in hopes of infecting way more insects. So it's a little bit gruesome. And honestly, if you, if, if you know the fungi, fungus I'm talking about and you've seen uh, the documentaries that I'm referring to, you'll see it's quite a hauntingly beautiful fungi. Um, it does look quite incredible in, in some, um, <laughs> some exoskeletons as it's kind of spread out and all of its glory. And there are actually, there's over like 600 different types of cordyceps fungus. So most of them specialize on one particular species, which is also kind of a bit random. And when I think about that, I consider the fact that that fungi has had to evolve and change and grow over, you know, how, however long this fungi has been around. But to have 600 variants, it, I can't help but expect that that evolution is happening at quite a reasonably fast rate. Uh, so, you know, given that, what honestly makes you or I think that there couldn't be a cordyceps fungus that infects humans and can uh, use a human as a host in a similar way? And I think, as I was saying, in this sense, The Last of Us has done a really fantastic job of giving us this, uh, I don't know if utopian is the right word, but this utopian world where... It's precisely what has happened, and it's what I imagine could happen in real life. So, interestingly, in my, my plethora of research I've been doing, um, I came across the fact that for literally centuries, the Chinese have been using uh, the ground-up fungi in a lot of their medicinal herbs. And as far as they know, and as far as we know, there haven't really been any ill effects for human consumption. So a small amount of scientific and uh, like medicinal research has been done into the health benefits of the fungus. So what they suspect so far is that it's all health-related benefits, so increased energy production, anti-aging benefits, uh, increased sexual function, slowing of tumor growth, boost to the white blood cell counts, which is would obviously be, you know, life-changing when you're looking at cancer treatments and uh, complications with the immune, dis um, immune system. So it's also uh, promising for type 2 diabetes because weirdly enough and almost a little bit spooky 
if you consider you know in a, a zombie-esque way the fungi can actually mimic the actions of insulin which helps uh, control the, the blood sugar levels so it's a bit weird that this fungus can uh, you know do something that is part of a human body uh, it's also supposed to improve kidney function and it can help with general heart health which I say it may help with general heart health but it's actually currently approved in China as a legitimate medical treatment for arrhythmia so it's uh, almost a fact that yes to a certain extent it can help with heart health so if you take all of this into consideration, all of these incredible benefits and the potential for incredible benefits, why wouldn't we try to take advantage of this fungus, right? But if you increase the use of the fungus, increase the breeding, the spawning, the scientific testing, uh, potential mutating, farming of the fungus, consumption of the fungus, would this not possibly speed up the potential for new versions and who's to say that that new version wouldn't be the one that infects humans you know as as far as i know nature can be pretty darn wild um another perfect example of this is scientists have recently discovered a mind controlling spider attacking wasp now the concept has been talked about before it's not particularly new, um, but this particular species of wasp is. So the larvae have an incredible ability to control the spider to a far, far greater extent than previously thought by scientists. So that's why this is such an exciting and kind of scary find. So we've all seen the, the like that scene out of... Um, uh, one of David's nature documentaries with the like heckin' big sand wasp and it stings this like heckin' big sand spider and like paralyzes it and then the wasp drags it to its nest and then it lays its larvae on the spider for nutritional purposes. This new wasp, however, which they call the Zadipota, Zadipota wasp, it lays its larvae on one particular breed of spider. And that larvae then infiltrates the host and begins to control its will, which is it, just creepy. It kind of reminds me of that zombie movie Slither. Um, and basically the, the larvae are able to control the spider to do things it, it would never do on its own accord. So this spider is a colonizing spider. It lives with thousands of other spiders in a large messy web. They don't leave the colony, like period ever they don't do it it's not part of their nature it's not part of their makeup um and they don't where uh, they don't weave just a bunch of different webs you know they have very particular webs with particular uses and they have no desire or need to be weaving anything different so when an infected spider leaves the colony you know just how much of a hold this little maggot has <laughs> so it basically makes the spider find a safe spot and then makes it weave a cocoon like web which again is very outside of its normal behaviors it then encases itself within that cocoon and the larvae will eat it 
so it's not only gross it's just crazy it's crazy how literally a little like maggot larvae pupa thing can completely overtake the will of an entirely different creature so Im imagine if a, that type of wasp or a type of wasp in this class could infect a human in a similar way I mean, I don't know about you, but I would literally rather visit the sun. Like, that. that's just... It gives me the heebie-jeebie. Oh, gross. Yuck. I don't want larvae anywhere near or on me. <laughs> um, but y you can see, right, how that would give off sort of like a zombie feeling. Um, probably more akin to its original form, to be honest. Where it's like c to do with control and being sort of like a puppet. So... Yeah, I can. I just thought, you know, I can really see how um, a new type of like fungus or a, a more specialized wasp could bring about some sort of zombie-like symptoms. Um, I think it's not, again, not entirely likely, but the science is there. All we need now is just some sort of like crazy new Siberian giant wasp that can paralyze and lay larvae on humans or something, right? <laughs> So on that skin crawling note, I think it, I'm probably ready to finish up on my little zombie escapade. I've definitely been talking for longer than I anticipated. This is just, um, it's one of those topics where the more you research, the more questions you have and the more you read and, and the, the more, you know, everything sort of starts piecing together. So I would love to hear whether you think a zombie apocalypse is possible and if you think it's likely or unlikely or unplausible. Um, it would be great to hear if you've got any of your own theories or if I've missed anything in, in my podcast today. So if you are interested in talking a little bit more about this topic, you can find me at ggramsemi on Facebook and on Instagram. Swing me a message. I would love to talk a little bit more about um, all of this new knowledge, this plethora of new knowledge that I have. But um, I guess until then, wherever you're listening from, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope we will see each other in the next episode. Until then, take care. <laughs>